If you engage in even the most elementary study of human anatomy, you'll quickly find that a human body changes for your entire life. You are either shrinking and or growing. Sometimes you're shrinking and growing. For example, shrinking. It's typical for men to lose height as much as an inch between the age of 30 and 70 due to osteoporosis when your bones lose minerals and become less dense. Women lose almost two inches for the same reasons. Then after 70, men and women will both shrink another inch in height. If you thought grandma was getting shorter, you're right. Muscles in both men and women shrink and atrophy due to lack of use. And then growing. Your nose, your earlobes, and your ear muscles keep getting bigger. That's because they're made mostly of cartilage cells which divide as we age. Your pelvis gains an inch in diameter between the ages of 20 and 80, and your skull gets more prominent <clears throat> around the forehead. This is a perfect image of the Christian life. There are traits that you possess that are naturally meant to shrink in the Christian life. And there are traits that are meant to flourish and keep on growing even until your last day. Today, the Apostle Peter, and I hope you have your Bible open to 1 Peter 2, for you'll certainly need it. We're going to go into great detail in our examination of 1 Peter 2. Peter is writing to believers, and he will instruct you on healthy shrinkage, what needs to shrink. In fact, what needs to disappear in the Christian life and in healthy growth as well. Let's pray together and seek the Lord's help now. Our Father, we confess that we prefer the words and productions of men to your holy and perfect word. But now send your Holy Spirit to turn our thoughts and attentions away from trivialities to what is lasting and true. We pray that your Holy Spirit would block out all distractions that the evil one will surely send. The psalmist said that he hungered and thirsted for your word. Give us that same passion to hear you speaking to us right now in this word. Correct our errors and teach us truth by this word. Mature us by this word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at the first three verses of 1 Peter 2. And I want you to hear, first of all, this apostolic counsel concerning mortification and sanctification. Mortification, of course, means putting to death sin. Sanctification means vivifying life and those positive traits, the work of the Holy Spirit. I want to be very clear and plain and sequential and follow sort of an apostolic flowchart here. The New Testament, if you look at verses 1 through 3, the New Testament contains several lists of specific sins, character traits. The Lord repeats these over and over again. He does it in Romans 1. He does it in 2 Corinthians 12, in Ephesians 4, in Colossians 3, in 1 Timothy 1. And what you begin to see once you read the New Testament broadly is the Lord continually is reminding us of these things that are meant to be mortified. And then not only does the New Testament contain these lists of sin, but it frequently gives us the figure of putting off these sins, killing them. 
laying them aside, as in our text, and then at the same time putting on their opposite virtues. And so listen to how often this this command, this admonition to put off this list of sins is given. Paul uses it repeatedly, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, Romans 13. James uses it in James 1 and tells us to lay aside all filthiness. Now look at verse 1 in our text. Peter tells us to lay aside specific character traits. The Greek word, by the way, for lay aside means to take off filthy clothes. This is, by the way, the reason why retraining the mind, Paul talks about it in Romans 12 too, that we're to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is why the training of your mind as a believer is so foundational. After conversion, there must be an intentional reordering of your thought patterns and your way of thinking. Nothing less than a full-scale tearing down old ways of viewing the world and building up a new worldview. And so let me ask you as we begin. When you came to Saving Faith in Christ, did you systematically study your character, your habitual actions, and did you ask yourself, which of these are wicked and unlawful? What needs to be laid aside? What needs to be mortified? I want you to do that with me now. Look carefully at verse 1. Peter tells the believer, this is what needs to come down. This is what needs to be mortified. This is what needs to be laid aside. And he names several character traits. These are to go the way of all flesh when a man is converted. He begins with all malice. A person living in malice is that person that has a deep-seated desire to make others hurt. In fact, this person gets great satisfaction in causing suffering. There are many who are religious, but they seem to love harming the brethren through gossip, slander, division, cutting speech. They live their lives in malice. Peter is telling you by leading off with this, what to lay aside. He's telling you it is never legit for a believer, even the newest Christian, to hate and harm another person. He quickly adds a couple more character traits. These can be actually melded into one. Deceit and hypocrisy. The term hypocrisy comes from a Greek word that means an actor playing a part. Hypocrisy is defined as contrary actions in public and in private, saying one thing and doing another. The reality gap between an outward appearance of godliness and the inward reality of wickedness. Attempting to create an illusion that you're more godly, learned, pious, or faithful than is true. Hypocrisy is all an act. It's a public act. It's a conscious and constant insincerity. It's a deadly character flaw. It's daily dishonesty and deception. Of course, the devil is the arch-hypocrite, for he can transform himself into an angel of light, we're told in 2 Corinthians 11. The Pharisees learned their lessons well from the evil one. They were masters of the art of hypocrisy. In fact, Jesus' most scathing denunciation of anybody for anything is in Matthew 23 
when Jesus seven times denounces the Pharisees for this, hypocrisy. And by doing it seven times, he's using a numeric device. He's showing that they are full of hypocrisy, completely duplicitous. Now, sadly, there's a little bit of autobiography here. Look at verse 1 of our text. When Peter tells the believer to lay aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, when he says this, it gives him pain to write these words. Because Peter, even as a converted man, even as an apostle, even as a man who had preached that great sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter still struggled with this sin. Look over to Galatians 2 and see Peter's struggles with hypocrisy. In Galatians 2, Paul writes about this incident between he and Peter. In Galatians 2, verse 11, Paul has to rebuke Peter publicly. This is one apostle rebuking another apostle. This is about as high level of rebuke as has ever happened. And Paul uh, tells us the, the distinctions of this rebuke. Look at Galatians 2 verse 11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For when certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came... He withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles, not as the Jews. Why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? And so Peter, when he writes these words, what it is to mortify, and he begins to list it, malice, deceit, and when he writes those words, hypocrisy, he feels that twinge of pain because he'd been outed publicly as a hypocrite. Think about the characteristics of the hypocrite. This is the person who's whose speech and his actions are contradictory. He tells others what to do, but he doesn't do it. Talking the talk is cheap, but walking the walk is expensive. And whatever the hypocrite does by way of acts of piety, it is always to be seen by others. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, this is the person who Jesus condemns because he sounds a trumpet before he gives his offerings. Think of this. This is a man who carries a trumpet with him. Now, I've got to tell you, when we were in Las Vegas... One of my favorite moments, we had so many. A woman walked in one Sunday, and I was standing at the back door before the service, and she's reached into her purse, and she said, is this a tambourine church? I said, I, I have never thought about it. And she whipped out her tambourine. She said, you know, can I, can I help the music some? Is it a tambourine church? I really like to attend tambourine churches. And I said, knock yourself out. So this lady helped us out with her tambourine. And so Jesus, though, talks about the hypocrite. He goes to a a trumpet church because we're told in Matthew 6 that before he gives his offering, he blows a trumpet. Could you imagine just a moment ago as the the deacons and the ushers were were taking up the offering, if someone would have stood up and 
and drop their offering in the plate in that moment. That's the hypocrite. He wants you to see his acts of piety. Or Jesus goes on to say, this is the man who, when he conducts his private devotions, instead of going into the closet, he stands on the street corner before he prays. To have the praise of men is what he lives for. Jesus commands giving to the poor in secret where no one can see. Praying in secret. The hypocrite too, Jesus says in Matthew 23, neglects true religion, namely the care of widows and orphans. But he loves to flaunt public piety. His religion depends on the place of the day. If it's Sunday, man, he knows all the Christian cliches. But if it's at Monday and he's at work or at school, he's profane. He's a chameleon. He can change his colors to fit in with whatever environment he finds himself in. He's severe with others, but also lenient with himself. Have you listened to a hypocrite describe others than himself? Show him, show the hypocrite a man who fudges on the truth, and he calls him the basest liar, and he points out that this man's speech shatters the ninth commandment. But point out his own difficulties with the truth, and he'll protest long and loud that he's merely a creative communicator. Oh, she, she hates gossip, and she demands apologies from others when they speak about her. But she's full of juicy tidbits about everyone. He may have a, a huge beam in his eye, but he can still spot that tiny splinter in your eye. And what Peter is telling the Christian, look carefully in verse 1. He's telling them to lay aside. Remember the figure he's using is the Greek word for throwing off filthy clothes at the end of a workday in the mud. He's telling them to lay aside hypocrisy. In other words, he's saying to the real Christian, be hard on yourself but lenient on others and lay aside every vestige of hypocrisy. Peter's not done. Remember, he's talking about those traits, those character traits, which have to go when the believer comes to saving faith. He adds envy. Envious people feel unhappiness and anger. Jealousy towards others because of their advantage. They grieve when anyone else prospers or is joyful. Envy caused the murder of Abel by Cain. Envy caused Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery. Envy caused Korah to rebel against Moses because he wanted to be in charge. Envy made Saul pursue David and seek to kill him repeatedly. And it all started when Saul heard the ladies' choir out in the street singing this one line. Saul has killed his thousands. And oh, Saul was happy. But they had to add the next line. But David has killed his ten thousands. Envy wants healthy people to become sick and skinny people to grow fat. Envy is greed with a vengeance. Envy is perpetually in a state of longing for what seems just out of reach. The envious man is never satisfied or content with what he has. He always wants more. He cannot abide anyone else having something that he wants to possess. By the way, envy is a crystal clear indicator of an unregenerate state. 
Paul lists envy repeatedly as an evidence of lostness in Romans 1 and Galatians 5 and Titus 3. In his apostolic critique of the infant church at Corinth, Paul tells them they're acting like unbelievers. And what is his proof? They're engaging in envy. Look back to our text. Peter is still listing all those things they have to go. All those things they have to be mortified. And he concludes with all evil speaking. This would include lying, gossip, angry speech. Now remember the biblical view of your tongue. Your tongue is you. It always discloses your heart and your true person. What you say is who you are. You are known by your speech. So often when the biblical writers want to seize on a clear and irrefutable picture of sin, they go straight here to the tongue. So that's why Paul writes in Romans 3, their tongue is an open tomb. With their tongues, they practice deceits. The poison of snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. This is why when Isaiah is convicted... In that section we read a moment ago for our call to worship from Isaiah 6, just after that, when Isaiah gazes upon the holy, exalted Christ on his throne, Isaiah immediately says of himself, Woe is me, I'm undone. And what's the evidence of that? Isaiah says, Because I'm a man of unclean lips. The writer of Proverbs, when he wants to sum up what a wicked man is known by, He says in Proverbs 6, a worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. But the converted man doesn't just mortify evil speaking, he puts on the exact opposite. He puts on careful speech. That speech called for in Proverbs 15 when the writer of the Proverbs says, the heart of the righteous studies how to answer. The righteous man, when he mortifies evil speaking, he puts on A guarded, careful tone. Again, the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 15, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. He puts on gracious speech. This includes truthfulness, beneficial speaking, timely words, kind words, words that edify, heal, and minister to others. And he especially puts on with his tongue those fruit of the Spirit, Self-control, gentleness, and patience. When was the last time you repented in bitter tears for evil speaking? For bringing reproach on the gospel in the name of Christ by giving opportunity for unbelievers to save you. The gospel isn't real and powerful. Why, it can't even change a man's speech. Have you ever repented of sins of the tongue? Angry speech, the cutting word, the boastful speech, the nagging, cynical speech. Well, Peter moves from what we are to put off, what is to shrink all of these character traits which have to go at conversion. He puts on what to desire. Look at the text in verse 2. He talks about desiring the pure milk of the word. Now, I want you to indulge me for a couple of minutes because we're used to using the term milk to mean a certain thing. 
I want you to listen to me because milk is defined in this text by the context. And so you're going to have to follow me very closely. Christians drinking milk often has a negative connotation in the New Testament. It comes from texts like 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he says, I couldn't speak to you as to spiritual men but as to carnal. I fed you with milk and not with solid food for until now you were not able to receive it and even now you're still not able. And so we're like, yeah, yeah, that's what milk means. It means this is what spiritual, only spiritual infants can take. And then the writer of Hebrews does the same thing. Stay with me here. The writer of Hebrews says to his audience, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Everyone who partakes of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. And so I want you to, first of all, get what these two mean before we see what it means in Peter. The word milk, as I just cited in 1 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 5, means the basic elemental teachings of Christianity learned by all first new believers. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, if you were listening very carefully, if you're familiar with the text, in Hebrews 6, he goes on and he actually gives us a list of six things that define milk. He says, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of, and he lists six things, six doctrines. If you're a brand new Christian, this is where you ought to be living. The writer of Hebrews says, repentance, faith, baptisms, ordination, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And so on the basis of Hebrews 6, we can say these six subjects are milk. They're the basics. If you've been in Christ a year or two, you ought to say, got that down, ready to move on. Ready for a stake now, Carl. Repentance, faith, baptism, ordination, resurrection, and judgment. Historically, the church has said other such truths are meaty, like the Trinity, predestination, Christian liberty and the conscience are doctrines for mature men. By the way, I've, I've learned the hard way and through some sad lessons not to teach on Christian liberty to babes. They twist it to their own destruction every time. But I want you to get how Peter is using milk in this context. Look carefully at verse 2. Because after saying what I just said, you need to recognize in this context, milk means something very different. He says, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. He is saying that just like infants who are a few days old, cry and fuss until they get fed their mother's milk several times a day. Just so, believers should agonize and fuss until they can have the word of God regularly. When Peter speaks about what to put on, he speaks to this. The heart desire of the believer. The heart desire of the believer always is like the baby in this sense. Just like the baby is saying... I need my sixth bottle today. The believer is always saying, I need the word of God today. So much so that 
just like the baby, will wake everybody else in the house up to get it. So the Christian desires the word. Now, not just infants know this, by the way. There are many of you here, I might be one of you, if you don't get fed three or four times a day, you're immediately out of sorts and are hangry. Physically, you have a built-in desire, instinctive desire to eat. Peter is saying that the born-again person has the same thing in regard to the word. And if they don't, there's something terribly wrong. If they don't desire the word. Peter goes on to clarify, look at verse 2, that the true believer wants the pure milk. They want the word free from additive, without the slightest mixture of human wisdom whatsoever. And then Peter talks about what happens when they get the pure milk of the word. He says in verse 2 that this is so that you may grow thereby. The main verb in this clause is grow. There is no such thing, and I hope I'm not speaking to you right now, but I'm afraid I, I might be to some. There is no such thing as a regenerate believer who says, I've grown enough. Grown enough in knowledge and holiness. Maybe you wouldn't ever actually say those words because you know it's just dead wrong. But when you hear about, oh, Sunday evening service, more preaching of the word, I've grown enough. Well, I listened to a series on Joshua in 1965. I've heard it before. I've grown enough. You see, the true believer hears imperatives like the one that Paul gives to the church in Ephesus, in Ephesus 4, to the imperative to grow up in all things. And he pursues spiritual growth until the day of his death. Now look at that phrase in verse 2. What is Peter's concern? That you grow. It's very simple. That the believer, after he has mortified and killed these, these wicked traits, that he's putting on growth. Let me explain what spiritual growth will look like. Maybe you've never systematically thought through this before. Here's what spiritual growth will look like in your life and the person next to you. It'll mean, first of all, increasing in your knowledge and understanding of God's word. A, fami a familiarity with the whole Bible. You've read it. You understand it. You know the theme and the plan, the outline and the structure of each of the 66 books. You know the meta-narrative, the big story of the Bible well. You have a systematic plan for reading and then studying and then memorizing and then meditating on the Word. Spiritual growth means speeding up the frequency of killing sin with more rapidity and more intentionality, mortifying and putting off remaining sin. It was John Owen who first said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. The growing believer knows this full well. Spiritual growth means intentionally increasing in your practice of Christ-like qualities, love and joy and self-control and goodness. Spiritual growth means intentionally increasing in your faith, in increasing in your ability to trust in God's person and his promises. Spiritual growth means increasing in wisdom and discernment. That means you'll more and more be able to make sharp distinctions. You won't fall for outlandish claims or folk wisdom or civil religion or cultural fads. You see, the one who's spiritually growing, he is moving from becoming a weaker brother 
to a stronger brother. One of the saddest aspects of my pastoral ministry is watching people who, when I walked in the door 23 years ago, they were a weaker brother, and today they're a weaker brother. They've not grown at all in terms of their conscience. So let me stop and ask you. Look at verse 2. Are you growing? Is your knowledge of the Bible more systematic, more extensive than a year ago? Are your habits of mortification and sanctification growing month by month? Are there events in your life that even last year used to cause you worry and fear, and now they're simply a platform for you to count it all joy with contentment? Is your capacity for trusting God's promises growing? Are you growing in contentment? Are you growing in your zeal and consistency for worship with the people of God every Lord's Day? Are your private and public commitments to prayer growing? That's what we mean by spiritual growth. And notice what Peter does at the close of this thought. Look at verse 3. He quotes Psalm 34 when he says, All this is, if indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. He's quoting Psalm 34, which, by the way, will be treated to other quotes from Psalm 34. Turns out, if you want to get inside the mind of an apostle, this is Peter's favorite psalm. Remember, Peter's Bible is the Old Testament. There was no such thing as the New Testament. And Peter's favorite, the the centerpiece of his Bible is Psalm 34. It's underlined and it's written in the margins. I'm saying that metaphorically for, for Peter. Because this is where the psalmist writes, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And so what Peter's saying is he's saying, look at verse 1 and 2. He's saying all this will be true for those who are born again. They have tasted the Lord's grace. They've not just heard that Christ is gracious, but they have an inward taste, a sense of the excellency and mercy and glory of Jesus. Now, by the way, look at verse 3. This is another way of speaking of conversion. When Peter talks about tasting of the grace of Christ. There are several ways the Bible describes our conversion and beginning. Think of some of them with me. Entering through the narrow gate, calling on the name of the Lord, meaning in a prayer of repentance and faith. And here, Peter seems to be saying that conversion is like that first taste. But this is also how we grow in the Christian life. By continuing to taste of the grace of Christ. That's certainly what happens every time we partake of the Lord's Supper. Next week when we come to the Lord's table. What better way to to characterize it than to say, we are tasting that the Lord is gracious. When Peter speaks of tasting, notice in verses 1 through 3, the thread that holds us together is the thread of tasting eating and drinking. It's a metaphor for spiritual nourishment. He's doing something that is extremely common in the Old Testament scriptures. Think of what sort of resources Peter would be drawing on. We're saying that when when Peter talks about entrance and growth in the Christian life, he uses this idea of tasting, eating, and drinking as a metaphor for that. 
He certainly has texts like Isaiah 55 in his mind. When Isaiah writes, Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what doesn't satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. That's what Peter's saying here. He's saying, have you tasted? If you have tasted, you'll be killing sin. And if you have tasted of the grace of Christ, you'll be desiring the pure milk of the word. Let me apply this word very briefly. One of my pastoral concerns is those who will say they're believers, those who will say they're regenerate, converted people. Yet, and when I describe this, I'm describing a pattern I've seen over and over again. Scores and scores of people. Yet, at 50, when the kids leave home, or 65, when they retire from their job, their Christian growth comes to a screeching halt. The things they should be mortifying, such as evil speaking and malice, they give free reign unto. I can't tell you how many 70-year-olds I've heard say, well, I'm 70 now, so I've earned the right to say whatever I please. What a wicked, God-forsaken worldview. And the things they should be giving themselves unto, the milk of the word and service, they atrophy and become inactive. Brothers and sisters, listen to me carefully. We believe in progressive sanctification. That's what we just confessed a moment ago when we used our, our chapter in our confession of faith on sanctification. We believe in progressive sanctification. The most godly, guarded-tongued, useful among us should be those who have walked with God for 60 years and are now flourishing in old age. Growth is not something that begins at 18 and stops at 50. Growth happens until you are cold and in the ground. And when I speak of growth, I mean measurable growth. We have all kinds of instruments that can measure just about anything. We can measure our height and weight and the amount of body fat we have versus the amount of muscle. We can measure our cholesterol level, our blood pressure, our sugar, and so much more. This text, this sermon, asks a very simple question of you and demands an answer. Are you a growing Christian? Is there any measurable evidence? Let's pray. Oh God, our gracious Father, the psalmist taught us to sing and pray, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But we confess that we have wanted, we have envied, we've even foolishly envied the wicked. Cleanse us from such wickedness. Replace our envy with settled joy and contentment, knowing that you're the greatest treasure we may possess and the purest joy we can know. Empower us to know that contentment and holiness taught in Scripture. And remind us frequently that you are truly working all things.